Hello there and welcome to Fill Me Up. I'm Steve Walker and this is the show to help fuel your film discussions. <sighs> right, hopefully this is third time lucky. This is this is the third time that I'm recording this for for you guys at home. We want some clean audio. It seems to have worked. I've done like a 25 minute test of me just rambling for to see whether it would work and it seems to be alright. So hopefully uh, this will be good. Um so last week was DC Fandome, um, and a bunch of uh, stuff was announced, uh, including some games, which uh, I won't really talk about, but they also uh, had a bunch of panels for different films. Uh, the first one being Wonder Woman 84, which ironically, well, sort of ironically, that if it wasn't for the virus, we would actually have seen by now. Um, but they showed a new trailer for it, and it looks good. I'm, I'm pretty excited for it, because Wonder Woman is one of the best worlds of DC films. I mean, my favourite still Aquaman because it's just so weird. But uh, yeah, it looks good. Uh, Shazam 2 has a new title in Fury of the Gods, which is a pretty badass title if you ask me. Um, but the main things that were there were The Suicide Squad uh, by James Gunn. Um, and that was shown... Uh, they showed like a couple of things they showed like a behind the scenes thing where you saw the costumes and some set stuff and some interviews and things and then they showed like a an introduction like who's who's who sort of thing in the cast so Idris Elba there's been a lot of speculation about who he's playing but he turns out to be playing Bloodsport who is character I don't know Uh, but apparently he shot Superman with a kryptonite bullet so I'm all in on that Uh, John Cena plays a douchey Captain America which, again, sounds great. Um, they also have some, like, weird... Like, the last film didn't really have that many weird characters, but this one's got, like, Polka Dot Man, Weasel, Ratcatcher 2, King Shark. Like, there's just a bunch of, like, weird and wacky characters, which I think is really cool. Like, it's really going for a different vibe. It's going for this sort of goofy vibe. Like, if you see the costumes in the behind-the-scenes thing, they look ridiculous, but it works. Like, it, they've obviously not been touched up yet, but... I'm still up for it and I still like it. Like it's, and the thing that I like about this is the cast is huge and there's a, the amount of villains in it is huge. And which is great because last time it was basically just a few villains and then a bunch of army dudes and like hardly any of the villains died. Whereas this, it's all villains all the time and at least half of them are going to die, it seems. So I'm just well up for this. Um, but yeah, uh, the other thing on the other scale end of the spectrum going from a super wacky thing to a super serious thing is the batman and this looks so good so good uh it looks very dark very grounded um but you it's one of those things that you could sort of see them putting in some supernatural stuff in like you couldn't have had that in the nolan verse but i feel like you can have it in this one if you wanted to um but maybe they won't do who knows um but there's some cool things in this. Riddler looks like he's got the writing of a seven-year-old. It's just a thing that every time I've watched the trailer, it's just why it's just something that I know is um, that he's got really bad handwriting, um, and he maybe has duct tape on his face. There's someone with duct tape on the face and some glasses on, but and it might be the Riddler. But yeah, uh, that looks a bit creepy. Uh, Colin Farrell is unrecognizable as the Penguin, assuming it is the Penguin in the trailer, which it does look like it is. Um, Jeffrey Wright, who's playing um, Commissioner Gordon or Detective Gordon or whatever he is at the, this point, um, he said that he just walked by him on set because he didn't even know it was Colin Farrell 
which is crazy. Uh, Catwoman looks pretty good. Like she's only got the balaclava kind of mask at the moment uh, with some little cat ears. So it's very basic uh, suit early on. But speaking of suits, the bat suit looks quality. It looks so good. It's got a bit of the Arkham kind of feel to it, which I think, which I really like. Uh, some of those suits are great. So yeah, I'm, I'm well up for that. And the Batmobile looked great. It looks so good. It's kind of more of a muscly car rather than a tank, which is not a bad thing. Like the Dark Knight tumbler is great in its own right, but I think, but I I love like a a muscle car. I'm a big muscle car sort of guy, so to have it looking like that is is top draw in my opinion. Um, and probably the highlight of this trailer is the pit where he just absolutely pummels this dude. Like it's unnecessarily brutal, but it's so good. It's amazing. Like you could just see the rage and flowing through them and stuff it's so good um but yeah overall it's just a really good trailer like especially because i've only shot like a quarter of the film i mean obviously you probably go for you probably try and shoot stuff for the trailer like earlier but even so um it's it's pretty good going um so yeah all in all i think it was a pretty good dc fandom um but for some other news uh some more Local news to me is that the uh, cinemas near me have actually opened, which I'm very excited about. Um, so I'm going to actually do a an alpha set based on cinema releases next week. I'm going to go all out on kind of going to the cinema and supporting um, supporting the industry and contributing. Um, so yeah, so stay tuned for that. Um, but yeah, if you if you are going out, make sure to stay safe and kind of wear masks and stuff. But if and if the cinemas near you aren't actually open yet, then don't worry about it. It's you'll you'll get to see these things eventually. They will filter out to you, or they will stay in cinemas or whatever. And just just hang on in there. It's uh, they will come to you in some way or another. I mean, like Mulan, it's coming uh, just just to streaming. So yeah, um, it's one of those things that that is it's a weird time, but um, stick with it and stay safe, everybody. But let's move on. The first section of the show is Alpha Set. Um, so this is where I look at three films that I have never seen before in my entire life. And they all begin with one letter of the alphabet. This week it is P. And if you do follow me on Twitter, then you will have seen those films that I have watched this week because uh, I put out on a tweet on Monday um, so that you can watch along with me during the week if you would like. But if but there's no pressure to because because uh, these are all non-spoilery talks and it's just a just a little uh, little glimpse into what I think of these films. So the first film that I looked at this week is Popstar. Never stop, never stopping. Um, so this is a mockumentary about a rap star, his former band, the Style Boys, his tour, and the ups and downs of the high life. Um, so he came out in 2016. It's got a 20 million dollar budget, um, but it only made 10 million, so it did lose a bit of money. Um, but looking into it, it did seem like it was a small release, so that's probably why. Um, it's got a 6.7 on IMDb. It's got a 79% on Rotten Tomatoes. So people liked it. And I particularly liked it because I gave it an 8 out of 10. Um, I thought it was really good and really funny. Um, as a And definitely like for a music documentary. Um, 
obviously it's a mockumentary and it's made by the guys from the lonely island uh you might know andy sandberg from brooklyn line nine if you've not uh aware of the lonely island and it's definitely got the same dumb fun feeling about it as those two things um and the songs that feature in the film definitely could have just been like lonely island songs so i think it's great um i didn't really know what to expect going into it um i thought it was going to be a bit goofy and wacky because it is the lonely island guys but it's really funny and there was a load of like really good interviews well not good interviews but just interviews with like really big names from the music industry like that i wasn't expecting like sam and cowls in it nas dj Khaled, pharrell usher ringo star and then there's like some great cameos from people who the lonely island have worked with before like akon adam levine michael bolton um and like there is a bunch of others that i won't really spoil because it's just crazy how many people are in this film and how like many people have like supported this film, especially because it's not made much money, and it it's basically like a parody of the whole music industry and stuff. So yeah, I just I'm really impressed with how many people they got on board for it, um, and it it really pays off because it, it regardless of when like as well as just have it's not as well as having all those sort of like cameos and big names in it. It's just really funny in its own right. The main character Connor. Uh, whose rap name is Connor For Real, which is a, a horrific name. I feel like a lot of rap names nowadays are pretty horrific, but you know what? But whatever. Um, and he's got that same kind of goofiness and kind of lovableness about him that a lot of Andy Samberg characters do. Like, he's, he's a bit of an unlikable character in terms of, like, the way he treats people and whatever, but he is kind of a bit goofy and a bit kind of, like, naive and whatever, and it's... Like he, there's a there's a point where he's got this pet tortoise that he's like really caring for that he's called Maximus and like like the rest of the time he's just like belittling people and doesn't really care about people but then he's got this tortoise that he's like oh have a little bit of food or whatever and it's just really funny um but yeah it's it's like because it's one of the because it's basically like a because it's a mockumentary and it's basically like shot the same way that a more serious documentary would be it's got a very predictable sort of plot and you kind of know where it's going to go. But even though it does have that, it is kind of, it's still got some like nice wholesomeness about it. Like it's still kind of a nice story in the end. And like, I don't know. It's it's like, I don't know. I think it balances it well in terms of like parodying the right things and like having some sort of kind of, emotional moments to it if it like when it needs to i mean obviously it's all tongue-in-cheek the whole time but um yeah it's just i think it, it it's just a nice film really and uh it's just a good solid funny film um the side characters in it are all fantastic like the manager's top draw the rapper that goes on tour with connor's brilliant uh imogen poots plays his girlfriend really well uh sarah silverman's great uh, I mean, it's just a good job all around. Like, everyone clearly knew what kind of film they were going into and what kind of film they were making, and they were just all on board. With it. And it's just uh, it's just great, and it just turns out really well. It means that everyone's put in a really good performance. So, um, But, yeah, we'll get on some fun facts about it. So, uh, like I say, most of the songs that are written could be Lonely Island songs, um, but they were actually all, like, either written or produced by... Uh, a guy called Greg Kirsten, who actually won a Grammy for his work on the Adele song Hello, which 
But what a range that this guy's got, that he's gone from hello to, um, to, to like just stupid songs like about Bin Laden or whatever. Like, it's just crazy, like the sort of like range that he's gone to. But yeah, no, it's clearly like the catchy songs as well. Like a lot of the Lonely Island songs are just catchy as well. So it, he's clearly like a good writer. Um, and most of the footage that was actually used in the film for like the concert stuff was taken from One Direction concerts, probably because Simon Cowell got on board and he's the manager, I think. So, but I just thought it was really funny because it's a parody of like not only just like music documentaries, but also like concert films and kind of things like that. And so, and obviously One Direction have done a bunch of concert films. So it's just, I just thought it was entertaining that they were able to use the footage from those, even though they're taking the mick out of them. So, um, yeah. And there is an actual nod to the Lego movie as well in this film, because in the there's a part where there's like a home footage film of uh connor getting the tortoise maximus for his birthday and in it he goes everything is awesome and that's that's funny because obviously everything is awesome is the main song from the lego movie and the lonely island were one of the writers and performance of the song so it's just a a nice little uh little nod and wink and a nudge to it which i think is nice um, but yeah, I think overall, like, it's not a film for everybody. Don't get me wrong. Like, if you're not into this sort of, like, goofy, stupid, fun stuff, then if you don't like fun, then you're not going to like it. No, I'm just joking. If, you, if you're if you not into sort of this this kind of dumb fun, then you won't, you might not like it. But if you are into sort of The Lonely Island or Brooklyn Nine-Nine or anything like that, then you definitely should check this out. It's definitely worth a watch. It's good stuff. It's a good time. Um, so, yeah. Uh, film number two for this week is... Um, well, it's, it, I'll, I'll let you know. It's uh, called Professor Morrison and the Wonder Woman. And it's about a psychology professor who, with his wife, begins a polyamorous relationship with a student assistant. Um, and that influences his creation and depiction of the most famous female superhero, Wonder Woman. And this is why I did it this week, because in honor of kind of DC fandom, I thought this is a good opportunity to, to watch this film that I was vaguely interested in. Um, uh, so it came out in 2017 and despite me searching high and low I could not find a budget for it um, but looking at it it's got to be in the singles of millions like there's no real effects to it there's no kind of massive names in it so um, yeah it's just it's got to be kind of really low budget but even so it's probably lost money because it only made two million dollars um, so yeah it's, it's just one of those one of those things but it's it's gone down well though it's got a 7.1 on imdb and it's got an 87 percent on rotten tomatoes and i it also went down well with me i give it an 8 out of 10 um i thought it was really good really interesting kind of love triangle tale uh a bit of a bit of a different love triangle tale as well so um the way that this film is kind of framed is kind of in a bit of an interesting way it's kind of Professor Marston is kind of in a review in kind of the mid-40s over the controversy of Wonder Woman's depictions. So it's mainly kind of talking about the frequent use of kind of sexual imagery, including bondage, um, which which does kind of come up every now and again. But and so the majority, but the majority of the film is kind of him retelling events to kind of contextualize what it, why he's written what he's written, or it's just kind of him remembering things of his past or whatever. Um, he does come back to the review occasionally and it cuts back to kind of the general public reacting to the to the issues and whatever and kind of being like this is this is horrible which kids shouldn't be reading this or whatever 
But, um, but yeah, I thought it's a really because a lot of so a lot of films based around this sort of time, so mainly in the, like the twenties and thirties, um, they're not very kind of female focused or female friendly in a way because because in the ta- at that time it wasn't exactly a time for female empowerment and so a lot of the time they're sort of kind of just treated as like i don't know girlfriends or wives or whatever they just kind of live at home and do the cooking and cleaning or whatever but this film is very different to that it kind of has a really refreshing take on it it's very kind of almost like a feminist take on it they're all all the characters are very uh kind of female focused and are kind of for female empowerment and it's just a really nice kind of way of looking at it um especially in sort of that time where you wouldn't normally get that sort of thing um and the thing that sort of makes this film is the characters um and like you you when you're watching them you do see how likable they are and you can you can genuinely kind of see like why someone would fall in love with them um like Going into this, I thought, well, I didn't know what to think, but I thought that, I don't know, like, I'm not a huge sort of fan of, like, rom-coms or whatever, where they they can be a bit saccharine and they can be a bit like, oh, okay, like, oh, yeah, and they're falling in love, and blah, blah, blah. But this is kind of deeper than that. It's, it's kind of more psychological and, like, there's more to it than just kind of a romance, or I guess three romances, because they're all in love with each other. But... Yeah, like, because I think if it was just a straight-out romance, I might not have liked it as much. But the fact that it kind of... There's lots of kind of psychological kind of evaluation and there's also kind of the Wonder Woman stuff in it, then it it does kind of make for a more rounded and interesting film. Um, speaking of the Wonder Woman stuff, it doesn't actually come in until quite late into the film. Um, but everything... It doesn't feel like it's too late in the film. Like, it's feels like it's a natural course for for it to take and it feels like everything before that does sort of like lead up to it and does uh have meaning and does kind of is is the context for for wonder woman and the creation of wonder woman because he's like combining all his experience with both of his lovers he's combining their personalities and their strengths and making this kind of beloved character that we know today um but as mentioned he also does bring in their keenness for kink uh, and it, it is brought up in the film, but it's, I feel like it's got a bit of class and a bit of taste to it. Like, it's all, like I say, like a lot of it's done from the psychological point of view. And so it never really feels smutty or like, like dirty or whatever. It just feels like some people experimenting and like, it's more about their psyche and stuff. So it's, and like a lot of the, th- like a thing that comes up regularly is William Marston's kind of disc theory which is dominance, inducement, submission and compliance and how that kind of relates to everything obviously kind of relates quite strongly into kind of like, I don't know, like bondage or whatever and then it relates into kind of female, the female kind of thinking and kind of, I don't know, in, in, in females' place in society and um, and, it, and he's kind of related it and put it in with all these, uh, into the comics with Wonder Woman. So, yeah, I mean... It, I think it works really well and like everything that is mentioned and, and kind of brought up in the film does tie together and it, it all does feel like it's got purpose and meaning never, and nothing's really brushed over like they they uh, there's moments when 
they basically invent the lie detector and it's but it's the, it's not just kind of like oh yeah they invented the lie detector it's then brought up and used like in a number of scenes to kind of kind of have some dramatic moments and to kind of put in some kind of character moments which i think is really well done um but yeah let's go on to some facts about it so this um it, it's claimed to be based on true events and like there are obviously kind of there was a guy called willie marston who invented wonder woman and everything but in actual fact, it is the director's interpretation. So she claimed, so the director, Angela Robinson, um, says that she spoke to a source and then came up with her own interpretation. But it turns out that that source isn't any members of the family um, and that she never talked to the family at all. Like Christy Marson, who is William's granddaughter, she rejects the claims in the films and she doesn't re- support it. She says like it, some of this, like it didn't happen that way necessarily in like some of those things it didn't work out like that um so but i think i don't think there's anything wrong in sort of doing your own interpretation of it because the the characters are and like these people are actually like portrayed really well and like they're they like you you feel for them as characters and you kind of can relate to them and they just seem like brilliant people but um, I think it is strange that she didn't talk to the family at all. Like, even if you are just going to say, right, well, I'm, I've, I've got these, the, these are the facts that I've managed to get together, or these are the sort of tales and stories that I've got together, and I'm going to try, and I'm going to make this film in this way. I just thought I'd let you know out of courtesy, sort of thing. Like, even if you're just doing that, that that it will make sense to do that. But to be honest, if I was trying to make a film, I'd try and get it kind of as accurate as possible. So. I don't know, it just seems weird to not talk to the family, but hey oh, it's just one of those things. Um well, yeah, another as well as some of the claims about the characters and the family being false, another uh, claim is that they invented the lie detector, but it turns out that that's false as well, and that they only actually invented the systolic blood pressure cuff, which is the bit that basically measures your heart rate or measures your blood pressure and whatever, and decides whether you're lying or not. So I feel that that is the crucial key element of the lie detector so and without that you've just got like a needle and a bit of paper and a pen or whatever like i think that you need that in order to get it to work really so uh i don't know i i think that that's been a bit petty but apparently they didn't actually invent the thing they just invented the cuff that is the actual key component so <laughs> they basically invented it they near as damn invented it um uh, one person who is actually a good friend of the Marston family and who does talk to them, apparently, is Linda Carter, who played Wonder Woman in the 1970s series. And she actually showed up at the Wonder Woman 84 panel out of nowhere. It was a surprise to everyone that she showed up. But yeah, it's, um, she apparently talks to them. So she maybe uh, she's got their advice on kind of how to portray Wonder Woman. Maybe she's the source. Maybe uh, she's the director's source. I mean, I doubt it. I feel like she'd be a bit more like open about i think it should be a bit more kind of i don't know i doubt it but it's uh it's a nice little thought but yeah uh it seems like linda carter is uh obviously uh keeps in contact with him and obviously has a good relationship with him which i think is nice um but yeah i think overall it's a really fascinating sort of look at some interesting lives and some interesting kind of ways even if it is kind of a bit embellished and kind of some of it is kind of false I think it works really well, and I think it it does kind of portray them in a nice light. So, yeah. Um, But let's move on to the third and final film from this week. And 
it's also from the 1920s and 30s, and this is Public Enemies. Um, so this follows a notorious bank robber, John Dillinger, as he deals with his FBI pursuers, other criminal elements, and a new love of his life. Um, so this came out in 2009. Uh, it had a $100 million budget, so the most expensive by far, the film so far. And it made $214 million, which is not bad, but it's not great, because you, for as a rule of thumb, you double the, the budget in order to account for marketing and things, so... They'd well, so that's 200 million. So they've only really made 40 million off like a hundred million dollar investment. So it's not, it's not great. Um, but um, it went down okay. It's got a 7.0 on IMDb, it's got a 68% on Rotten Tomatoes. I didn't like it as much though. I only gave it a five out of ten. I thought it was kind of boring at times and a bit and kind of confusing. Um, but I'll get into that a little bit later. The uh, main character of John Dillinger was played by Johnny Depp, which I, I thought was nice to see him playing what I would call a normal role rather than um, playing like some weird character. Because like, at that point, he was like playing like Willy Wonka and like the Mad Hatter and John, Jack Sparrow and whatever. So like, it's nice to have him just playing a normal person sort of thing. Um, but there is part of the film later on where he starts to look less like Dillinger and more like Depp because he's having to like disguise himself, which is just like well, whatever. Uh, Christian Bell's the lead FBI agent in it, who's who's all right in it, but he's not in it as much as I would have hoped, and he didn't get a lot to do in it. And I feel that that's kind of the case of a lot of the cast. Like this cast is packed. Like there's Marianne Cotillard uh, from uh, The Dawn Rises, uh, plays Dillinger's girlfriend. Uh, she doesn't have a lot of stuff to do. Uh, Carrie Mulligan's in it for about two minutes. Stephen Graham, who you might know from kind of British TV shows and kind of pops up here and there. And, in various things, he plays a really good role of Babyface Nelson. Um, David Wenham from Three Hundred and Van Helsing's in it. Uh, Stephen Dorff from Blade and Immortals. Jason Clark from uh, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes and Terminator Genesis. He's in it. Stephen Lang from Avatar. Like this cast is absolutely stacked. But um, there's also a bunch of other people that I don't recognise and that I don't know. And the confusing thing about it is because it's the twenties and thirties a lot of them dress, they all dress basically the same and they all have basically the same haircut and so it's kind of hard to follow who's who and I think that's partly to do with the editing and the way it's shot and stuff like that. Um, I mean, it does. the film does open pretty well. It's got a jailbreak and there's kind of a few fun scenes like the bank robberies are pretty good but I would say, look, on the whole, a lot of the action's kind of hard to follow um, and one scene that kind of in particular kind of highlighted that to me um, was kind of they do a shootout at a lodge um, and the, I, I sort of had no idea where people were shooting and where they were in relation to each other. Like they'll cut to one guy who's behind a tree, just shooting at something. And then they'll cut to people in a window that's just shooting at something. You don't really know kind of where, in which direction they're shooting. And then just someone falls over and you're like, where's that bullet come from? And you don't even know who's shooting a lot of the time. Like it, cause it's hard to see and hard to follow because they all look the same and things like that. Um, yeah, I, th- I think it's they just could have done a better job at sort of highlighting individual characters. I think the part of that is that they, they a lot of the characters have a very similar sort of personality. Like none of them are kind of standout characters. The only ones that really are are kind of Jason Clark and Stephen Graham, and everyone else just kind of jumbles into one. And so when you've kind of got those action scenes, there's no perspective, and you can't really tell what's going on. But it also means that it's hard to tell, like, 
who's kind of been carried forward from scene to scene in a way like you get until you get to a point partly through the film where john dillinger is apparently on his own and then you're like what's happened to everyone else like i don't remember like because someone will go down or like maybe get captured or killed or whatever and you're like i don't even know who that is necessarily is that a side player is that a big person is that someone in the gang i don't i just don't know like it's kind of hard to follow um it does kind of have a interesting kind of bit about J. Edgar Hoover that we covered in the J. Edgar film the the week about kind of when he's kind of lobbying to try and change the Bureau of Investigation to the Federal Bureau of Investigation. And then they have that kind of court hearing where he's like wanting that and they're like, well, have you arrested anyone? Like, have you personally arrested anyone? He's like, no, I haven't. Um, but... Um, I think that's one of the better parts of the film, if I'm honest. Like it, it, it's good to put it in there as well because it it has like a big impact in the film. Like it's got a big kind of role in the way that the story develops, which I think is good and interesting. Uh, which wasn't really explored in the Jag film that much. Um, but yeah, I think um, like the thing that I looked at because because I was a bit confused about kind of where how it had gone and what's going on in some film. I did look it up afterwards just to check. Is this just me? Because I was kind of tired at the time and it was. I watched it in the morning and I was like, oh, maybe I'm not concentrating too much. So I did look it up afterwards. But everything that I read in the breakdown of the synopsis was, I, I'd understood. So I, I seem to have bas- understood the basics and kind of the gist of it. But it's just kind of characters and scene to scene. It just didn't really make a lot of sense. Which, I don't know, it's just one of those things. Like a lot of the time they're sort of, mumbling and you can't really tell what's going on and you don't know who's talking to who and what they're saying and what's going on and it's just i don't know it's just one of those things i think it's just kind of structured and edited and paced weirdly and just i think it's just executed kind of poorly really but saying that there are a few moments that i absolutely loved because like the bank robbery scenes and stuff i mentioned and any time where a particular song called 10 million slaves by otis taylor kicks in it's just pure brilliance like it conveys this really cool vibe and it's it just fits so well i didn't i wouldn't have thought you wouldn't have thought it would but it's just absolutely pitch perfect it's so brilliant and it conveys this like i say it conveys that cool vibe and tone but that i think the film missed i think it's it's quite a serious film there's not enough fun about it like john dillinger is supposed to be this like rock star criminal that everyone loves but you don't get that feeling. You don't understand why that is. Like, he just seems like a bit of a bad dude, really. You don't get the kind of showmanship about it, which I think they should have lent into more and had that bit of fun with it. Um, it's what that film's missing. Um, and Carrie-Anne Co- Marianne Cotillard's character does get a bit to do later on. Um, and I did love the stuff that she, she got to do and kind of the way that her character went. But I feel like it was a bit of a whiplash in sort of like personality. Like, maybe you should have gradually uh kind of got her to that stage and things like that but i don't know it's just one of those things um but yeah let's get into some facts about it um uh, yeah so the filming of the shootout at the lodge that i mentioned actually took place on the 22nd of april which turned out to be the anniversary of the actual shootout um and director michael mann says that he didn't actually know it's just a it just it was just a happenstance uh, and he didn't know until a crew member pointed it out. But I think it's it's a nice little coincidence that they uh, managed to film it on the same day. 
But not only did they film it on the same day, they actually filmed it in the exact same location. They used the same lodge. And Johnny Depp actually was staying in the same room that John Dillinger was staying in, apparently. Um, but no, they also used some other some other actual kind of uh, real-life locations. They used the actual Crown Point Jail for a jailbreak scene. Um, but then that had to be redressed because that had uh, been changed into kind of museums and shops. So that had to be redressed so it actually looked like it was the uh, 1920s and 30s, which was interesting. Um, and lastly, the so they filmed a lot of this stuff at real places, but then they also filmed a bit in Wisconsin as well. Um, and when they were filming, a boy told Johnny Depp that he liked his hat and he was like, yeah, I want one like that. And so Johnny Depp said that he would, he would see to it. Um, and after filming, Johnny Depp actually sent his hat to the boy which uh, I think is a nice little touch, and that kid is probably made up. Um, so yeah, I just thought it was a nice little little story. Um, but yeah, I think overall it's it's a nice it's an interesting story um, in the film, but it's just poorly executed, really. Um, and it kind of make because it's kind of a bit confusing. It's kind of boring, and you're not sure kind of what's necessarily going on. But you, I mean, you, like I say, you get the gist of it enough. But it's just I don't know. It's just not, I just, I just feel like it was poorly executed, really. Um, but that's just me. So, we will move on to uh, a film that wasn't, um, this is where I talk about a film that unfortunately didn't get made for one reason or another. And this week, we're talking about Bioshock. So, in 2007... Uh, 2K Games introduces us to game designer Ken Levine's world of Rapture. Um, Rapture is an underwater 1960s paradise. Well, at least that's what it was supposed to be. Uh, because the discovery of a gene-modifying material called Adam gave the folks of Rapture some superpowers, but also a crippling addiction to it. And it turned the utopia into a dystopia, uh, with nightmarish splices and terrifying big daddies roaming around. Uh, big daddies you may have seen have got kind of the big diving helmet look and they've got the massive drills for hands um, and they protect these creepy little, little girls um, that kind of, that's where you get the Adam from. Um, so it's sparked a franchise uh, that continues to this day. There's a fourth installment uh, in the works at the moment. Um, so it's no surprise that the rights to make a film were snapped up the next year after the the original game was released. Um uh, they were bought up by Universal Studios, who looked to make a film working closely with Ken Levine, so as they get an authentic version. Um, they brought on a writer called John Logan, uh, who was nominated for the Oscars uh, for his screenplays of Gladiator and The Aviator. So obviously he's a he's a very good writer. Um, and they also brought on a Pirates of the Caribbean director, Gore Verbinski, who had dabbled a little bit in the horror genre because he'd done The Ring. Uh, with Naomi Watts, um, there was kind of a bit of a cult film. Um, the idea was to kind of utilise the same green screen technology seen in Zack Snyder's bloody epic 300 to depict the underwater setting of Rapture. Um, it's obviously it's a quite a difficult kind of feat to do, and there isn't really um, a lot of kind of real life place like you can't go and film underwater so that obviously this is kind of a, a good way to do it um um yeah and like the film 
it seems to be that the film, well, the script has been leaked and it seems to have followed the story of the first game pretty well. Uh, you've got your lead character, Jack, crash landing in, in a plane and kind of stumbling upon a rundown Rapture. And then he learns about the history of Rapture and his own history and how they intertwine. Um, for those that have played the game and know kind of the way that the story goes, the big twist is in there. Um, and apparently it actually went a bit darker uh, and took it a little bit further, which um, was a bit was kind of interesting. Um, so yeah, so everything looks pretty good so far. And 300 had a budget of $65 million, which was uh, something that the studio were kind of happy with. Um, but the difference between 300 and Bioshock is the the world of 300. The, you don't need a lot of practical sets around the kind of green screen. Uh, whereas Bioshock, because it's set kind of in this underwater 1960s kind of hellscape, you need a lot of kind of. And and the problem is that there isn't really anywhere in the world that you can kind of film. At that kind of conveys that sort of tone so you basically have to build these sets from scratch so this kind of along with the the fact that you need to do effects for all of these kind of creatures and kind of the the action and whatever it means that the budget actually came out to around 150 million um and that's that's not necessarily a huge problem for like maybe a pg-13 film but for something that's an R-rated film, it's a bit on the steep side, especially seeing as this is a video game film. And obviously, we know, we all know the video game curse uh, in terms of films because it's very rare that you get a good one. They all seem to be quite bad. So it's got both of those things that are in, not going for it. Uh, and to put it in perspective, with a $150 million budget, you'd need to make like 400 to 500 million to be profitable and at the time in the late 2000s no video game had actually broken 400 million and since then only detective pikachu rampage and warcraft have done and they all have pg-13 ratings so understandably the studio was worried they did propose making the film pg-13 but it's not really the sort of story that you can do that with so they said, well, how about we lower the budget to 80 million, which is pretty reasonable, really. Like Deadpool 1 had a budget of 68 million and that made like oodles of money. And after it did that, the budget for Deadpool 2 was 110. So it's not even like it's a, that big of a jump in terms of budget. And so so uh, 80 million is not anything to grumble at, but uh, Verbinski didn't feel that he was able to to do the film on that sort of budget and he said at that time there were some r-rated expensive r-rated movies that were not working it's very difficult when you're eight weeks away from shooting a movie you can really see in your head and you've almost filmed the entire thing so emotionally you're right at that transition from architect to becoming a contractor and that will be a difficult place to get back to um so obviously he didn't feel that he was able to do it um it seemed, i think the r-rated film that they're talking about is watchmen um, so it had like a big budget and lots of effects and stuff, but it, it was kind of a bit of a niche sort of uh, market and so it didn't do as well. And and this arguably is, is a similar sort of niche market. So, um, so yeah, so I think it's probably wise for the uh, studio to do that. But um, yeah, but unfortunately for Gore Verbinski, it was 
it was quite close to shooting and he'd obviously got everything sorted and uh yeah and it's, and it's disappointing so he actually left the director's chair and chose to focus on his animated film rango which was also written by john logan um which turned out to be a really good choice because uh rango actually won best animated picture at the oscars um so very good choice um but uh, Verbinski did actually stay on as producer, while 28 weeks later director Juan Carlos Fresnadillo took the chair. Um, but Ken Levine, uh, the game designer, didn't actually gel with Fresnadillo in the same way that it did with Verbinski. And and the film was kind of put on the back burner until in 2013, Levine officially cancelled the film. Uh, he said they brought another director in and I didn't really see the match there. And 2K is one of those companies that puts a lot of creative trust in people. So they said, if you want to kill it, kill it. And so I killed it. For us, there's no burning desire to have a movie made just to get it made. It's really got to be something that will A, give the fans something that they want, and B, for those who don't know Bioshock, really introduce them to something that's consistent with the game and is going to be a good representation of the game. There are differences between games and movies, no doubt, but the movie has to draw from the same DNA in terms of the world and the story beats. But, you know, we don't have a need to get it made, which I think is fair enough. Like, it's, I'm, I'm, have respect and admire them for just sticking to their guns and going, we don't actually have to get this made. We don't have to compromise on this if we don't want to. Like, we have a really successful game franchise and, like, the gaming, the gaming industry is kind of just as big, if not bigger, than the film industry. So, um, so it's completely right that they don't have to make it if they don't want to. And I feel that it's, and yeah, and I feel that they are well within their rights to say, well, if we're not getting an accurate depiction, why make it in the first place? So yeah, I think it's really good that they're doing that. Um, there is a bunch of concept art floating around on the internet by kind of by Kazra Farahani, uh, who worked on Birds of Prey, Captain Marvel, Star Trek Into Darkness, and Thor. Um, and then later on, Jim Martin, who worked on Alien Resurrection, Matrix Reloaded, Captain America: First Avenger, and Pirates of the Caribbean at World's End, also directed by Gore Verbinski. Um, and so they give us a glimpse of the kind of world that we've seen, that we that we could have seen. Um, if you kind of come, like think of those sort of films, like you can see some of the kind of if you think of this film that they've worked on, that that you can sort of see some of the kind of inspiration and where stuff might kind of tie in together. Uh, it does sound pretty good. Um, but yeah, there's not really been a lot of word on it since uh, Ryan Gosling apparently mentioned it in an email to Sony Pictures producer Amy Pascal, but. I mean, that's probably one of the gajillion things that get mentioned in emails in Hollywood, so it's not worth looking into, and uh, it was quite a while ago. Um, Verbinski did talk about it in an AMA recently, um, and mentioned that with the success of R-rated films like Deadpool, Logan, Joker, that there is a chance that a faithful version could be made and could do well in the future. Um, And considering the fourth game is actually on its way, then I feel like now wouldn't be a bad time to start putting wheels into motion. Uh, kind of by the time that you've got the... You get to release the film, you can release it around the same time as the game, and then it's bringing up hype again. And I think that'd be a good time to do it. So, uh, yeah, I guess uh, we'll see. A lot of people said that Guillermo del Toro would be a good choice for it. Um, I think um, Mike Flanagan would be a really good choice. He uh, did directed Hush that I talked about a number of weeks ago. Uh, he's also done like The Haunting of Hill House and Oculus and Doctor Sleep. He's a really good, really well uh, acclaimed kind of horror director. And I think that that's probably the way to go because um, I feel you can easily 
uh, get a horror director to work with kind of stunt coordinators to do action where I think it'd be harder to get an action director to do kind of horror but yeah I, I, Guillermo del Toro is also a good shout because uh, he's got a bit of both um, but yeah I, I, hopefully we get to see it eventually but um, I guess we'll have to see um, I kind of I'd rather not get a Bioshock film I'd rather not get a really bad Bioshock film than get yeah if you, I'd rather get no Bioshock film than a really bad one if that makes sense but let's move on to the final section of the show and that is quick fic um so this is where i take one of 20 film characters and i put them in one of 20 film franchises um and try to make a prequel a sequel spin-off or reboot of them by smushing them together and seeing what i can come up with um so this is actually the only part of the show that is not being repeated because because uh, it's random every time uh, so you've missed out on some stuff, some absolute golden stuff, um, like Rambo in, uh, what was it, Rambo in Star Trek or Jason Bourne in Star Wars. You've missed out on those, but maybe they'll come up again, who knows. But the ones that we've had in the past are John Wick in The Matrix, we've had uh, Kevin McAllister from Home Alone in Jurassic Park, we've had uh, Buzz Lightyear in Indiana Jones, but let's see what we get this week. First off, we need to find out what kind of film we're making, and it is a prequel. We're making a prequel of the matrix making a prequel to the matrix with jason bourne in it uh so making a prequel to the matrix with jason bourne so um so jason bourne kind of works in quite well because he is obviously uh has amnesia so he's trying to work out who he is and what's going on and i think that that could work really well and sort of being able to uh, work out what the matrix is and he could be um there could be some sort of problem when he um was plugging into the matrix um and it also explains why he is this assassin sort of person um because he is able and maybe you make him an agent maybe you make him like an agent smith so maybe he's like an agent born um and um because agent smith is is like a virus um, that the Matrix has put in, and maybe um, he is, um, maybe he's the predecessor to Agent Smith, and uh, what the Matrix actually did, and what the robot squid, robot tentacle robots did, is that they decided to try and corrupt someone that was going back into the Matrix from Zion when they were plugging in. Um, so that's how they were doing it, and they were making this assassin person who uh, didn't know who they were, but then as the film progresses, he learns who he is and what's going on and and kind of wants to fight back and whatever, and that means that... And so when you get to the actual Matrix, they uh, the robot tentacle people, monsters, aliens, things, they decide to make a virus from scratch rather than trying to corrupt an already existing person that's going back so that's how you get agent smith so maybe this is a prequel of kind of how you get agent smith and you have agent born before that and um yeah and i think that would be an interesting way of doing it um yeah i think that would be a good way of doing it um he's basically the predecessor to agent smith but he comes good in the end and he has to maybe he fights agent smith at the end and then he maybe he dies to agent smith in the hands of agent smith and then that's how you get the mate that's how you get agent smith and it's a prequel to 
the actual the matrix so i think that to me that's that's uh it's just something that i've come up with with on the top of my head i think that would be a good way of doing it um but if you have any other ideas or suggestions for how jason Bourne could be in a prequel to the matrix then please let me know um either on twitter at all at walker or by email at fillmeuppod at outlook.com um there you could use the same contact details if you want to talk to me about anything we talked about this week any of the films that we talked about if you're going to the cinema what you're seeing um anything from dc fandom um yeah anything at all um that would be swell um yeah as always thank you very much for listening um hopefully this is this sounds good to you uh third time round um yeah if you would be a darling and uh leave a five star review that will be absolutely top draw just to get people uh just to get it out there uh, and let people know that it's good stuff um and also if you could just tell a friend uh that might be interested that would also be swell uh, yeah uh, once again, thank you very much for listening, and I'll see you next time. Bye.